Here's Johnny. It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Saturday. Happy weekend to you, wherever you may be. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour, and we are ably joined as we are every Saturday by Nathan Miller, tall guy Nathan, and we can see through our in-house video here the portal into his life. He's got an exciting weekend going. He's got his fingernails bitten down to the nub as he hopes the Mariners will manage to squeak out and eke out that last wild card position. Oh boy, it is an exciting time in Seattle for Mariners baseball. <laughs> for the first time in 20 years, the Mariners, I don't know how to describe it. It's just such a great feeling, are finally on the edge of making it to the playoffs. I hope they do. I mean, I've been waiting for this. I would be thrilled to see the Mariners make it to the World Series, as a matter of fact. And in so saying, I have to say, because Suzanne and I reside an hour south of where the Tampa Bay Rays play baseball Mm -hmm. pretty successfully in recent years. And they are looking to return to the World Series. If they manage to win the World Series, it could happen. The dream lives on. But you would have the reigning Tampa Bay Bucks Super Bowl champions, back-to-back Stanley Cup champion, Tampa Bay Lightning. And what if the Tampa Bay Rays won the World Series? We would be title town in all bold caps. That would be incredible. Well, I don't know if I'll be cheering for them if the Mariners make it to that far, but I can tell you right now I am definitely rooting on those Rays because they're playing one of our wildcard contenders, the Yankees. And if they can Ah, knock out the Yankees from then... I'm yep. all for the race. Okay. We would be only too happy to oblige you in that <laughs> regard. It, it would have to be a strange combination of circumstances that would motivate me to root for the New York Yankees. Is New York Vinny anywhere with an earshot? Well, he's not a Yankees. He's a big Mets guy anyway there. But, I mean, the idea is, you know, if you're going to hate a baseball team, you got to hate the Yankees, right? The damn Yankees. Oh, of course. There, So uh, we'll see how it goes. Crazy in the American League this year, and I'm glad the Mariners are still in it. I wish them well. All right, but let's see how it goes. In the meantime, go Mariners and go Rays. There we go. Now I feel like going upstairs and buying a $10 hot dog. (laughs) <laughs> and a $12 beer, a cup of foam. <laughs> oh, my. $50 parking tickets, too. Seriously? Yep. They really jacked them up. Now, this is just if you park and you're going to walk there uh, more than a thousand feet to get to the right. uh, box and go to the turnstile. In the main garage, $50 to park your car. I remember when parking was, and we actually have a guest who's going, that I'm sure, I hope we're going to talk about something besides baseball, <laughs> but it is, it is the way of life. I remember the first time that Seattle hosted the All Star game. Mm-hmm. And it was $50 to park your car back then. Mm-hmm. And now, oh, well, that's the new normal. Unbelievable. We'll see, we'll see what it's like in 2023 when T-Mobile Park is the home stadium for it. There you go. This guy, I get all my sports news from Nathan, you realize. <laughs> so this is, and, He's uh, in the know. We're, and we're looking forward to the release of the Kraken too. That I can't wait for that. That will be extraordinary. And that's our two minute news break. Let's go ahead and move on to our guest. 
Yes, indeed. We are so happy. What is it now? 12 times? Even dozen. An even Today. dozen for a very distinguished man whose spirituality is something he takes very seriously. It's in his DNA, is how I would put it. John Welshans joins us, the Ramananda himself. I can't remember the last time we had him on. Seems like it's been too long ago. And today we're going to enjoy an hour of metaphysical Q&A. I need to get that trademarked because that's just one of the things we like to do with learned people who take their enlightenment seriously. And certainly that's characteristic of John Welshans. Why don't we give him his mad props and bring him on? Ramananda John E. Welshans is a highly respected contemporary spiritual teacher who lectures and leads meditation courses. He's been a practitioner of mindfulness meditation and various forms of yoga. In addition to his book, One Soul, One Love, One Heart, The Sacred Path to Healing All Relationships, he is also the author of Awakening from Grief, Finding the Way Back to Joy, and When Prayers Aren't Answered. He studied world religions throughout his life. He holds a BA in comparative religions from the University of South Florida and an MA in history of religions from Florida State University. He has also traveled and studied extensively in India and is a gifted counselor and teacher who has worked closely with Ram Das and trained with Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. We'll be sure to give out his website before the end of this hour. But in the meantime, for the 12th time, welcome John Welshans. Thank you, Suzanne and Gary. How wonderful to be with you both. And, uh, you know, something that wasn't mentioned in my biography was that I'm a lifelong Yankee fan. So I've been sitting here Uh (laughs) (laughs) feeling a little left out. (laughs) You know, the Tampa Bay Rays are what they are but the other day we were taking a friend of ours uh, kenny who was with us for three weeks here had a wonderful stay with him and i pointed out to the sign on our approach to the airport that george steinbrenner stadium george steinbrenner stadium is famous in this area because yes you have the rays but the yanks show up every spring that's where they train And the people many times will retire down to the Tampa area, but they still follow the Yankees. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, I had the same birthday as Mickey Mantle. He was a little older than me, but Mm. uh, we we were both born on October 20th. So he was one of my great heroes when I was a kid. Oh, very uh, good. And you got a birthday coming up then, too. I do indeed. Yes. Well, we... talk to you periodically at 12 times actually in our 15 (laughs) years on air and we kind of uh maintain our our eyes on you with what you're doing with your uh, meditations which have been i guess on zoom like everybody else and we caught wind there of your trip to maui and so we wanted to just lead off with an easy question and ask you what's happened what happened in maui (laughs) well the sun was shining and the ocean was oceaning and you know it was just beautiful um you know ramdas lived there for the last 15 years of his life and i realized that during the course of those 15 years i had probably visited 30 times Mm. and this was the first time back since he died in december of uh, 2019 
And, you know, it was very, very interesting. Just beautiful to be there, of course. It's a wonderful island. And uh, it was wonderful to visit his home, which is now being um, converted into a retreat center and sanctuary and kind of, you know, his room and his apartment within the house um, being preserved pretty much the way it was when he was there. And uh, I had the honor of teaching the first retreat workshop, it was a one-day retreat uh, at the house since he died. So um, oh. they do every week what's called kirtan, which is uh, devotional chanting. Uh, but uh, this was the first time they had an actual workshop. So it's really a delight to be there and, and just be in that atmosphere. And people asked me afterwards, well, what was it like being there without him or without his physical presence? And um, my first experience when I was up in his room was that it was both empty and full. You know, it was oh empty empty of his physical presence, but mm -hmm. a very strong sense of his spiritual presence, you know, when I'm not the only one who has noticed that. So uh, quite delightful. It was a wonderful trip. Very nice. And quite an honor that you would be leading the first workshop there since his passing as well. Yeah, well, of course, part of that is just that they haven't been able to do anything for the last year and a half because of, of COVID. Yeah. So it was more a timing thing than anything else. I was going to be there and they thought, you know, things had gotten under under control enough that we could go ahead and do it fairly safely. Erin, I love to travel and we have not traveled in two years. Our last trip away was October of 2019 before COVID hit. And um, and so we took we actually took a two day trip just to go to Walt Disney for Walt Disney's 50th celebration at Walt Disney World. They opened in uh, October 1, 1971. And so we decided to go up there for, uh, for ourselves for our first trip away in two years. And we were pleasantly surprised at how the safety protocols were very much adhered to. And I mm. think we felt pretty safe everywhere we went. Signs were uh, on every wall, every everything, just saying, you know, mask up before going indoors. So yeah. for every place that we went, people were all masked up and seemed to be very compliant. And so it was a safe environment, but we haven't been away in, in two years and it just feels weird, you know, to, <laughs> to be so homebound. You know, I, my first interaction with a crowd was when I went to get vaccinated. And I suddenly thought I haven't been around this many people in a year and a half. And suddenly, you know, I was yeah. in this big arena that had been converted into the vaccination station. And, uh, you know, it's, it is, for me, you know, I have to say we're all different. We all have different proclivities. My partner, Maureen, and I um, adapt to solitude pretty easily. <laughs> but it's hard for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, we enjoyed the time, we enjoyed the quietness, we enjoyed the, the reduced activity, we enjoyed the way that the air became so much clearer when there weren't, you know, millions of cars and trucks on the road and airplanes in the skies. 
Yeah. And just that opportunity to be quiet and go within was really, we found to be a blessing. I know it's very hard for many people, but we, we enjoyed it. You're also reminding me that I was a student at the University of South Florida in Tampa in 1971 when Disney World opened. Oh, my and, uh, you know, it sort of took us by surprise, I maybe because I wasn't paying attention to the things that you would need to pay attention to to know about it. But, you know, it was just like one day somebody announced, hey, you know, there's a new Disneyland. It's called Disney World and it's over near Orlando and it's massive. And then, you know, we learned about how uh, Walt Disney started buying up the land in that area decades earlier and. Uh, it was quite a vision, quite a vision and quite a place. And I went there once with Ramdas. That was fun. <laughs> Gary, that was... Gary and I were saying yesterday, you know, what kind of a person do you need to be to have that big a vision? 27,000 acres of land bought under various shell companies. So people wouldn't know it was just a single buyer. Right. And uh, to to put something that huge out there, I I can make a little vision. I can get dinner together tonight, <laughs> you know, and get the laundry done. But a vision of twenty seven thousand acres of entertainment with all these various things, it's yeah. uh, you, you've got to be in quite the mental space to do that. Well, he clearly was an extraordinary human being, Walt Disney, and. Uh... You know, probably an interesting study to to look at his life. I know he had serious financial problems when he was first starting out. And um, he was such a visionary that, um, you know, he sometimes struggled to keep up financially with his visions. But to imagine decades ago that there could be this incredible development in Florida especially in that area of Florida, which central Florida in those days was, you know, really kind of desolate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, swampland and, you know, he just saw something and created it. Amazing. They have their own power station for Uh Walt Disney World. That was a smart thing. You drive by it as you're on the approach to Orlando, coming from, I guess it would be south to north. You're going there and you, you see this and it isn't that it's so imposing. It's that it's there. Right. You know, the idea, okay, well, we'll have our own power station. That's going to cut down on our power bills. <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll make this juice and get this all working. And, and you would think it would take a facility much larger than the one you see to keep this vast expanse of popular entertainment going day in and day out. And yet they do it. There's everything down to the last detail. In fact, there was ABC had a 2020 special last night on the 50th anniversary of the magic of Walt Disney World, actually. And um, they were so perfectionistic. You want to talk about having the engineer's mind. There was a carousel that was erected that was found to be two inches off center. Looking at the blueprints, they built it two inches off center and the construction crew was ordered to tear it down and start over and get it perfect. Now that's commitment. (laughs) 
Well, that's one of the keys to their success, you know, I think is that um, they've often usually been a company that pays attention to detail. And uh, I have a dear friend who worked for the Disney company for many years as head of their music division. And uh, I once asked him what the key to their success was in his mind. And he said, well, he said, um, we believe in giving people what they want and need rather than deciding what they should have and trying to, as he put it, ram it down their throats. You know, he said um, the company always tried to respond to um, needs or, or wishes that they could perceive in the marketplace and, and find a unique way to fulfill those. And they certainly have. I mean, and it's, you know, it's not cheap to go there. And, uh, you know, the idea of taking a family with a lot of children to go there, it's an expensive thing. And yet everybody loves it. So there it is. <laughs> and your friend who was so important, so integral, what is his name? Chris Montan. Chris Montan was the head of the music division. And Actually, his job was essentially as executive producer for most of the soundtracks for their movies and later uh, the Broadway plays. So he was very involved with creating the music for The Lion King and Aladdin and um, uh, Frozen, you know, and over, I think he worked for them for 30 years. He's retired now, but still busy. <laughs> but uh, yeah. We're name dropping a bit here, but I went to high school with Don Dorsey and your friend would know my friend, Don Dorsey, who's a genius among his many achievements working for Disney for any number of years before he got into other projects. He is the one chiefly responsible for the Main Street Electrical Parade electronic music that you can't get out of your head. It becomes an earworm. <laughs> Uh -huh. that, that was Don's. Don Dorsey put all that he laid down that track and look how many years it survived. I think they haul it out of mothballs even now. It was retired and then it gets brought back on occasion. But that magnificent achievement is so much with us that I checked in with Suzanne one time. I think it was for Wilderness there. We were there at the front desk checking in, and I happened to casually mention that I went to high school with Don Dorsey, and he was the one behind the electronic uh, layout, the sound of Main Street Electrical Parade. And this just shows how legacies work. This young lady at the counter said, oh, well, you can tell him that I, I don't appreciate the fact that I can't get that out of my head. I hear it in my sleep. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know what? Uh, as backhanded compliments go, that's not bad to come up uh -huh. with something that becomes so ingrained. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Amazing. And so, uh, and I will take that. Now, watch this leap. Things that get so ingrained. You and I grew up in a Western society. We're Americans. And when I think of ingrained, I go back in my mind to the spirituality with which I was inculcated. I was a parochial school kid for the first six grades. And I went through the sacraments, you know, there's first communion and the terrifying first confession, confirmation, all of that. 
And yet I realize there are many people in the world, I'm sure millions, who embrace an entirely different paradigm of spirituality and of religion than that with which they were indoctrinated as children. Doesn't that seem in retrospect, John, to be a rather scary prospect? Let's take, for example, George Harrison. George Harrison didn't grow up there riding the school bus that his dad drove there and playing the guitars, living for guitars, drawing guitars in art class, everything guitars. He didn't focus on the Bhagavad Gita when he was a teenager, but there came a point in his life as in the case of so many people where the old answers don't really answer your deepest needs, your yearnings. And so you try, you experiment with something, and then a whole new world opens up to you. It happened for George Harrison. And I take it, John, that it happened for you too. Indeed it did. And uh, very much around the same time it happened for George. Of course, he was one of the leaders who we looked up to as a hero figure or cultural leader who, uh, you know, the Beatles were, were certainly very integral to getting us to start looking at Eastern philosophies and Eastern teachings and listening to Eastern music. Um, I, I know that the first time I heard the, the term guru, it was from the Beatles talking about Maharishi Mahesh Yogi when they were uh, studying with him and ultimately went to India to be with him. So yeah, um, I think that that's one of the most interesting things from the last more than 50 years now, um, that this interest in things Eastern, um, Hinduism and Buddhism and uh, Indian dress and so on, Indian music became so so much a part of our culture and almost like we don't even notice where its origins are you know like before the pandemic at least there were yoga schools springing up on almost every block in the united states and that obviously is a tradition that originated in india and um you know so we started to realize that that in india they had insights and wisdom and knowledge that that had been a part of their culture for thousands of years that we were just delving into because we weren't getting the answers from our tradition so uh yeah interesting insight beliefs is one of the things i wanted to talk with you about today and you know the idea <clears throat> of varying beliefs, Western cultures, Eastern cultures, we, we can say in knowing each other in this technological era that those things are beginning to blend. And at the same time, where I think it is more common for people to know about uh, the Buddha, to know about Eastern religions, there at the very same time, you have, again, you know, a little bit of a, a polarization about, well, I have the true religion, you know, and so there we are with all these religions around the world. 
And, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if, if, it, if this is a push me, pull you, if this is, are we really going to come into more of a unity in time with, with all of our belief systems, or are we just going to develop different belief systems? I, I, I wonder sometimes where religion is going when it doesn't satisfy, what one religion doesn't satisfy a person's need that they mm. really do need to look elsewhere and find out what other people are are thinking and how other people are living what what is your sense about that having taken comparative religion studies all those years ago what what does that mean decades later to you what how do you see the world evolving when it comes to spiritual beliefs well, that's a great question, Suzanne. Um, and boy, <laughs> as often happens when I'm talking to you guys, uh, it feels like we could go on for hours about that one issue. But I would say this, that one of the first things that I noticed as a student of comparative religions 50 years ago was that everybody had the only way. <laughs> yes, yes. And, yeah. um, and then I started to notice that where that attitude wasn't so prevalent was in the roots of the traditions in India. Now, it still springs up. You know, there's certainly been plenty of conflict between Hindus and Muslims in India. Um, the one thing you don't often hear is conflict between Buddhists and other groups, and nor do you hear very much um, the sort of internecine battles that happen that are so evident, for instance, in Christianity, where like I grew up, uh, you know, Gary, you, you went to parochial school for the first six grades. Um, I grew up in a Protestant family that thought, you know, the Catholics were terribly wrong and misguided. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I heard all of that. It was like, you know, I had two people uh, cousins, one cousin and, and one uh, sister, actually, um, who married Catholic men. Uh, my sister married a Catholic man. I had a, a male cousin who married a Catholic woman. Oh, my goodness, what an uproar in the family about just that, you know, which nowadays would be an, a non-event, basically. So, you know, there certainly has been growth and change. Um I think that belief systems in general, and, and this spills over into political beliefs, which become like religious beliefs at times, um, you know, a belief system is something that your mind clings to, to try to put order into something that you can't make sense of otherwise. And, and you know, at one level, being a human being is an experience of chaos. You know, how do you understand this universe and what your role is in it? And unfortunately, that often causes people that uncertainty and, and um, that sense of uncomfortability of not knowing causes people to go toward a system that says this is the way it is and you accept this and everything will be fine and then you wind up at war with people who believe something else and they they think that that is the way it is and believe this and everything will be fine and uh you know it's kind of like 
in Buddhism, one of the things that I came to really appreciate about the Buddha was when I realized that, that Buddhism is very often mischaracterized as an atheistic religion. And in fact, it isn't. I mean, because Buddha, what he said basically was not that God doesn't exist. What he said was, if this thing we call God does exist, and it very well might, <laughs> how could our little mind ever comprehend it? How could we ever understand it? That which creates and sustains the universe? Holy mackerel, <laughs> you know, how can you understand that? And so his approach was, instead of trying to understand it, which seems to always lead to trouble. In other words, you come up with an idea about this is what God is, and this is what my role is in God's universe. And then I wind up at war with all the people who believe something else. And we're fighting over whose concept of God is right. You know, Buddha said, rather than confuse ourselves that way, why don't we just experience life directly and do what we can to connect with whatever that might be that has created this whole thing? And why don't we do that through simple things like loving kindness and compassion and generosity and peacefulness and cultivating tranquility in our minds rather than all this agitation? So that's my, uh, the short form of my reflection on your question. I think it's a profound question. I think it's very important these days. Uh, but I think that generally what we see with people who, who subscribe to these sort of intractable religious beliefs and political beliefs is that they're really trying to solve something in them that's probably very fearful fearful that they don't understand the universe and fearful they don't understand what their place is in it. So let's come up with a very strong system that tells us we're right and the rest of them are wrong. <laughs> you know, it's a problem. <laughs> I like that idea of the direct response that you were talking about because I think that's what causes the um, saying now, I'm spiritual but not religious. Yeah. I'll have that direct experience in my meditation or in my prayer work or in my creativity or my art or what, or music or whatever it might be, but I don't want to subscribe to a particular religion. We need to take a break, but when I come back, I'm going to, I'm going to introduce something to you that I want to hear about from your religious studies to see how much it was talked about because I read something that kind of shook me up about uh, religion and spirituality, and I'll just leave it at that. All right. Within our single hour together, Suzanne has come up with a cliffhanger, and I don't even know who shot JR. So this will be great. <laughs> Ramananda John Welshans is our honored guest of the hour. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. We're going to talk about comparative religion and how it got that way. This is Manson Mitchell, and you are tuned in to Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. 
staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Robert Kopecki, who, after living through three near-death experiences, discovered that you don't have to die to go to heaven. On Saturday, Mary Lee LeBay shares her expertise in hypnotherapy and past life regression, and even shares a technique that you can use yourself. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10, right here on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Ready to shake things up? Try Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour for the 12th time, John E. Welshans, Ramananda John Welshans. John, if people would like to connect with you or get your books, what is the best way for them to do that? Well, the books are all available on Amazon. That's probably the quickest and easiest way and, uh, you know, often the, the least expensive way. Um, the books are One Soul, One Love, One Heart, uh, this, When Prayers Aren't Answered, and also Awakening from Grief. And um, my website, they can go to uh, www.onesoulonelove.com, and they can also get there under my name now, too, just uh, johnwelshans.com. Very so, good. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I left the both of you with a cliffhanger and, and Gary won't be surprised when I, when I mention this, but uh, recently I, I read a book on religion, which I have not done in many years, but it had to do with deep, deep, deep into antiquity, five and 10,000 years ago. And it was talking about the role of women in religion. And it, it, the book outlined its research for how and when things went patriarchal. And I, I thought it was very well written. I was fascinated throughout the entire book. And one of the things that the book posits is that the triune father, son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was actually the female of the group. So you had the thought you had the creativity, and then you had the manifestation. And so I just was wondering, in when you were taking comparative religions, 
was there a, any kind of discussion about the the female the goddess the the uh the power behind the throne as it were <laughs> yes yes and um you know it was interesting to me having grown up as a presbyterian me too that, by the way oh well yeah. No, I never heard of John Calvin until I was in college and studying religion. And yet, you know, he was the inspiration behind the Presbyterian Church. Right. I guess maybe he became a little controversial. But um, yeah, you know, it was fascinating to me, first of all, to tune into the, uh, the presence of Mary in the Catholic tradition. And then to see beyond that, the many female saints in the Catholic tradition. And then as we move to the East, you know, in the um, Hindu tradition, um, which is very, to my mind and my experience, very balanced in terms of the, uh, the number and, and uh, importance of feminine deities uh, along with the male deities. Now, I, I want to say also, just in that regard, that when I mention deities plural in Hinduism, uh, I mentioned the the uh, misapprehension of Buddhism as an atheistic religion, and there's a misunderstanding about Hinduism that it's polytheistic, meaning many gods. Um, ultimately, Hinduism is absolutely monotheistic, meaning it only believes in one God, and that God is known as Brahman. Brahman created everything. And it's just that in the Hindu world, um, ha God having created everything, um, they've always seen many different ways to worship God or approach God. And um, that there are clearly both male and female um, tendencies in all of creation, you know, and we have like the, the image of Mother Earth, like the Earth is our mother who cares for us. And sometimes then the, the father is seen as formless, the formless God that infuses it all with energy. And the mother is like the form that receives the energy. And um, I, I'm fascinated by all of that. Yes, I, I was too, John. And the other thing that the other belief system that uh, I was poking at me reading this book was the idea of the one God, that that was also an invention of man. And I've said many times on the show that I think that people often have problems with religion because of the dogma, you will believe this, and they're all man-made. And I just keep saying all the religions are man-made. You, you had mentioned earlier about the, that direct response, the, 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 the communication, if you want to call it that, with that ultimate source that you potentially get in meditating. And I know you lead a lot of meditation classes because I, I see the emails on that. And, and so there is that direct response and there's the, 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 the experience, the experience of life 
in the world, the experience of our souls living at this time. And then I, I just kind of, you know, all those religions, well, they're all just made up anyway. And then to have somebody challenge my idea that there is just one source, I thought, now that's very interesting. What, what if there wasn't, what if there was more than one source for all of it? You know, that it's, that's made up of many puzzle pieces. I, I understand it's a big ocean or a big puzzle that's made up of lots of little pieces, but you know, what if there's more than one? I mean, yeah. we get outside this universe, how many universes are there? You start looking in the outer space and the galaxies and the universes and all of it, it it's so vast, we can't really comprehend it that easily. And, yeah. and so when you're saying, you know, we do this stuff in order to preserve our sanity, if I'm, if I'm <laughs> interpreting what you said correctly, um, you know, to make ourselves sane, we need to put things in boxes that we can identify. Well, I would, I would uh, recharacterize that as, as pointing out that sometimes our efforts to maintain our sanity are the things that drive us crazy. So, uh, you know, and I think that's certainly true of religion. I think that it's really, you know, these different systems when they're appealing to fear and they're trying to soothe fear, that's going to cause trouble. You know, I, one of the most fascinating moments I ever had, I saw the Dalai Lama being interviewed once. I've seen him many times, but in this one particular interview, a uh, questioner asked him, Your Holiness, if science were to discover something that is at variance with basic Buddhist belief, what would Buddhism do? And without batting an eye, the Dalai Lama said, oh, Buddhism would have to change because Buddhism isn't a belief system as much as it is a search for truth. So if there's something that we find that is at variance with what our system is about. And he said, you know, Buddhism is really, when you get right down to it, it's a system of psychology. It's a system of understanding how the human mind works. And, you know, what brings us to happiness and what causes suffering inevitably. And that really hasn't changed in 2,500 years, 2,600 since the Buddha lived. But then the, then the Dalai Lama smiled and he said, I don't think it will happen. <laughs> But if it does, Buddhism would have to change. And he was saying that from a confidence that, that the principles that, that underlie the tradition of Buddhism are, you know, again, they're not belief systems. It's like these are, and, and the Buddha's in, uh, instruction to people was always find your own way, find your own truth, have your own experience. People said, how did you become enlightened? He said, well, I did this practice of meditation. Why don't you try it and see what happens? May, might be a different experience for you. So it makes room ultimately for a much wider view as you have, um, you know, sort of alluded to Suzanne, that, that how do we know really, you know? So I go with the one source because I think that parallels science my understanding of science, which is limited, but uh, things like the Big Bang theory and so on, you know, the 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 um, 
unified field theory seem to all harken back to one source of energy and that being light. Um, that to me, I find interesting because I think it parallels what is present in the Hindu traditions in the East. When you get really deep into their belief system about how the universe is created and sustained, but um, but the the idea that even if there is one source, it can take infinite number because the source is infinite, it can have infinite numbers of manifestations and and infinite numbers of different approaches to get back to it. I, that to me is really what spirituality is about. How do we oh. reconnect with our source? I will watch specials with Suzanne on a channel like National Geographic, Discovery, and there are others. And I marvel at times at the complexity of life on Earth, not just human life, but this biosphere, the environment generally. And then you go into physics. How, how deep can you go? Is it particle? Is it wave? It goes that we all know about that experiment where you send energy in as a uh, in two slots and goes in as a wave, goes in as a particle. How does that happen? And the observer being present has an effect on the outcome in some way. I, that's taking me so deep into the weeds, I, I can't figure it out. And then I say to myself, if there really is the survival of human consciousness beyond the death of the body, if it's not all contained within the human brain and mind actually is non-local and it uses human brains as but one means of expression, of filtering or expressing reality, what does it all mean ultimately? And in connection with that, I just want to tell you, I don't know if you go in much for mediumship, John, there, you have your own angle on spirituality. I, I don't practice mediumship. I'm a passive consumer of the product. <laughs> and so, and I've had any number of readings with various mediums and there are mediums and there are mediums, but in particular, one that I particularly enjoyed was a sitting in which my father came through and this lady, the medium said, what your father is telling me about religion is that when you get to the other side, all of these disagreements, discrepancies, and interpretations of religion, of denominations, of traditions, none of that stuff means a damn thing. <laughs> these are human considerations, in other words. And we yeah. have our allegiances, and we have our rules and regs, and we have our articles of faith. But when that is stripped away, when you drop your body... And you go over as a conscious being and with a sense, apparently, of personal identity, if that's how it works, once you get to the other side of life that we now see so dimly, all of these religious issues aren't even issues anymore. There is the face of reality and you are face to face with it. I find that both daunting and utterly inviting. It's like, you know, I'm enjoying being in my body now, but part of me can't wait to go see what that's all about. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, one of our conversations about Ramdas uh, this summer on Maui 
was about his fascination with the afterlife, especially in the years leading up to his death. You know, he was in his 80s, he'd had a stroke, he had physical issues. It was clear that, you know, one way or another, like all of us, but he very consciously was getting prepared for his death and looking forward to it. You know, he was fascinated by what it was going to be. And um, he kept recommending to me a book, which I will pass on to you. Unfortunately, I can't remember the author's name, but the book is called Backwards. And a woman who had like a near-death experience and came back to life afterwards, she was, had been an attorney and, uh, you know, very rational, but this experience completely turned her around and she wrote extensively about what her experience was on the other side. So uh, Ramdas really liked that one. So I'll pass that on to you and to your audience. The book was called Backwards. Available on Amazon. And as I, <laughs> as I like to say every time it comes up, please, this is our appeal to you. Please do what you can to support Jeff Bezos. The guy, <laughs> he probably eats a can of Spam three or four times a week because he can't afford anything better than that. Send your money to Jeff. <laughs> yeah, don't even buy anything. Just send him a donation. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. And then you see what you get in return. It could be anything. Yeah, yeah that's... Um, yeah. Uh, when I look at these sorts of experiences, more and more I am persuaded. And really, John, that's the best way I can put it. I can't prove any of this. Do I believe there's an afterlife? Yes, I do. Do I believe in reincarnation? I am persuaded that is so. I couldn't possibly prove it, not while I'm in this body, in this world of three dimensions and the fourth dimension being time. There, I don't know what to say about it, except I'm persuaded that whatever it is that we are doing here, we either have done before or we chose to do it to have another kind of experience. And beyond that, I believe it's one of my pet theories that if you look at someone like a, a Mozart, you look at, at Bach, you look at the, the great builders of the pyramids, the rulers of ancient civilizations, or far more recently, a musician like Prince, who I think recorded his first album, he might have been 18 uh, years old, and there was, I don't know, 20 or so instruments on the album, and he played every one of them. And I'm thinking, there must be something to this notion of a continuity of life. Because if you were that into music, just to take that as a form of expression, how many lifetimes do you figure it would take for a Mozart to be Mozart as we treasure him? And the same goes for Prince or the Beatles or, or it seems like there's, there is that continuity rooted in dedication to a form of expression. Otherwise, if we are here once and we have this DNA, we have this physical form, and we happen to achieve these things, honestly, I don't know from whence it would come. Because that kind of beauty is so rare in a world that can be so tragic or so humdrum, that there has to be some governing principle that even allows these forms of expression to exist. Yeah, and the other thing that, you know, picking up on something you said a few minutes ago about just sort of the expansive nature of mind or consciousness, um, it's an example that I use often in meditation class. I'm inviting people to open to the idea that their consciousness is not 
imprisoned in their body or in their mind or in their brain. You know, it, it's, it's everywhere. Consciousness is everywhere. And the very uh, simple experience most of us have is that we'll sometimes think of someone, someone will pop into our mind. We thought, oh, I haven't heard, thought of that person in years. And a few minutes later or the next day, the phone rings and they're calling us or we get a letter from them or something. And I, my thought is just how would that happen if we weren't all connected in this vast web of consciousness that you know we're all a part of? And it seems to be happening with increasing frequency these days. So, yeah. It's interesting that you would say that because we have heard other people say that, other uh, intuitives and psychics saying that they feel like intuition is becoming more commonplace. Mm -hmm. And um, And synchronicity also, you know, that thing where like, I'm finding all the time I'm reading something and I'll see a word and I'll hear it simultaneously someone will speak it or you know the television's on and i'm reading the newspaper whatever and i'm seeing and hearing the same word at the same moment i don't know what all that means but it does mean to me some kind of interconnection of all of it you know when things like that happen uh with us we'll have a tendency to say pay attention pay attention because the universe, I think, is we're reaching out to it for answers, and it's reaching back to us with information that that we want. And so I think that the, the universe is much more interactive than most of the time we think of it as. Mm. We think of as us being, you know, unique, and then everything else is out there. But, you know, we don't think of ourselves as being all that connected. And when those synchronicities happen, then we, we really understand that connection, you know, how that, how that happens, how we are all one, yeah. where, where normally you don't think yeah. about that very much. Well, another quick quote I'll give you from the Dalai Lama, whenever he's asked um, what, if there's one single teaching in Buddhism, that's the most important, what would it be? He says, understanding the basic interconnectedness of everything, that mm. nothing, nothing exists in isolation from other things. It's all interconnected. And that includes human society, I'm sure. Yeah. Ramananda John Welshans, thank you so much for joining us once again. It seems like we just got started and here we're wrapping up. <laughs> So let's, I look forward to meeting you once again in person, you and the lovely Maureen. In the meantime, let's look forward to visit number lucky 13. Beautiful. Great. All Great right. to be with you both. Much love to you. Thank and you. to you, sir. All right. Stay tuned for Jupiter Rising. Have yourselves a great weekend, everyone. <laughs>